0: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Tuesday, April 15th, Income Tax Day. My name is Ruth Ann Acosta, and I'm kind of substituting for Bob right now because he had a, a scheduled meeting that he couldn't get out of. Uh, tonight, in our special speakers series or our special program series, I'm very pleased to introduce a gentleman to speak to us about his book, which he has written, called Our Home Away From Home. He is a graduate, or a, uh, has uh, attended and graduated from the Perkins School for the Blind, and has many interesting things to share with us. Uh, his accomplishments, I'm sure, are, are numerous, but we, uh, I think the best thing I could do is turn you right over to him, and let me present uh, Bob Branko, Bob, the telephone is yours. We're anxious to hear what you have to say.
1: First of all, I want to thank you, Ruth Ann, for allowing me to be on your uh, program this evening to talk about my book. It's a pleasure sharing my information with all of you. And as you pointed out, I am a graduate of the Perkins School for the Blind. I went there from 1969 to 1977, and like any other new situation, whatever happened during those eight years made an impression, because everything was new, so what happens according to human nature, usually is that when you have a new experience, it stays in your mind, so much so that you remember it throughout your life. And one of the things that I found myself doing after I graduated from Perkins is when I talked about my experiences there with my friends, I started to joke around a little bit and I used to say, you know, I really should write a book about this stuff because I have so much to talk about and so much to share with everybody because of all the experiences that I went through. Well, as it turned out, I was not really joking. One day I decided that I will indeed write a book about my experiences at the Perkins School. So two years ago I began to write the book and the title of it is My Home Away From Home, Life at Perkins School for the Blind. I was at Perkins from ages 12 to 19 when I graduated. My first five years were at a public school here in my city of New Bedford, Massachusetts. I was in a sight-saving class. Now, I don't think sight-saving classes exist anymore as they once did. Now, what a sight-saving class basically is, is a class consisting of several people that are either blind or visually impaired that normally receive one-on-one attention... From the teacher, usually they are not in the same grades. You may have a second grader in with a fourth grader who's in there with a third grader, and so on and so forth, so that each student gets individualized attention. I had the least amount of vision in that class, so I learned Braille while everybody else pretty much read large print text material. I enjoyed myself in the sight-saving class. So to make a long story short, when I was in fifth grade, the state of Massachusetts decided that they could no longer accommodate me at public school. So they made the inevitable announcement to my parents that I had to go to Perkins. I did not want to go. Who wants to live away from home, really? You know, We all want to grow up and be raised in our own cities with friends and family. But ultimately, I had to go. So I went to Perkins, and I lived there five days a week and came home on weekends. And we did a lot of things at Perkins. I think I received a quality education there. I spent eight years from grade five through grade 12. I had to repeat grade five because, like most new students, they want to be cautious with you. So they kind of hold you back the first year to make sure you know all that you have to know. That's just how it is. Everything was pretty much accessible. As far as the books were concerned, the textbooks were in Braille for those who needed it that way, and we took a lot of the same courses that every other person normally takes in a public school. For example, in high school, I took four years of Spanish. I took two years of algebra, one year of geometry, one year of biology, one year of trigonometry, One year of science, a year of history, four years of English, not to mention my elective courses, which included piano, industrial arts, gym. I took a year of physics once, I took physiology. So basically, my education was tops, I believe. I took my SATs when I had to take them. I took the Stanford Achievement Tests when I had to take them and so on and so forth. I lived in a cottage with other boys. And the thing about Perkins, when you first when I first arrived there back in 1969, The rules were very strict. You could not associate with girls if you were a boy. You couldn't hold a girl's hand. You couldn't kiss a girl. Bedtimes were very early. You had to honor a certain dress code. A lot of the kids complained about the rules because the kids thought that we were too much institutionalized. And we had to be very careful of how we behaved ourselves. That doesn't mean to say that everybody behaved by the way. Certain kids decided not to behave, and they decided to try to figure out a way around the system, which resulted in a few (laughs) pregnancies, by the way, so the girls had to leave school. Uh, We did have sex education to neutralize what the kids taught us. (laughs) Because, you know, kids are going to teach us what what they wanted us to know, so that's how it goes. But... We also took after-school sports. I remember lifting weights after school, being involved in baseball, bowling. I remember being in a bowling tournament where I won a silver medal one year, and in another bowling tournament, I won a bronze medal. We did a lot of running. We did a lot of track and field. We did swimming. There was a wrestling program at Perkins for people who liked to wrestle. The wrestling team did play in a league. So there were a lot of wrestling matches either at the school or away from the school against various high schools throughout the state of Massachusetts. In the cottage, we had a lot of good times, and sometimes we had not so good times. Sometimes our house parents were very good to us. Sometimes they were totally unreasonable. In my case, one of the house mothers thought at one point that I had more vision than I was letting on, so she kept asking me to prove it. And, of course, I thought that that was a very unpleasant way to treat a blind person. When you're in a school for the blind, you should be treated like a blind person. Granted, I had a little bit of vision, but if I was going to fake blindness, why would I want to leave home and travel 65 miles away to a school for the blind? I would just assume stay home. But like I, we had a lot of good times as well. I remember in the cottage playing shuffleboard, and then we were out in the playground a lot doing some swinging on the swings and sliding on the slide, and we had outdoor bowling. We played some other games. There was a basketball hoop. There was a giant swing and things like that. We liked to participate on those activities. Then later on, when we went into the upper school, like I said, before we got involved in the school sports, we were also involved with the drama club and chorus. We had a lot of chorus rehearsal time, especially before a concert. Perkins held three Christmas concerts and one spring concert for the singers, for the chorus. And then we had one major drama club play that we did every year in the springtime, which required a lot of advanced rehearsals as well. There was a Perkins Athletic Association. There was also a student council for those people interested in that. There was a radio club for people who wanted to join ham radio. There was a handbell ensemble for kids to get involved with. We learned different songs using the handbells. There was, like I said earlier, piano. Some kids took voice lessons. They learned how to play the guitar and other instruments as well. The organ sometimes, drums. And then, of course, we had chores in the cottage. We were assigned to dish crew on a rotating basis. We had to mop the bedroom floor once, once uh, well, each week uh, monthly. Each kid took turns mopping the bedroom floor and emptying the trash, and collect. And there was one person designated to collect all the linens to put in the laundry bag for the staff to do laundry. And then one of the other things that happened throughout my time at Perkins when I decided to relax some of the strict rules, he started to allow more independent living courses for people to learn how to can take care of their own suites and do other things. There was training for that. Eventually, boys and girls began to live in the same cottages. And then, of course, there was an additional opportunity for careers, such as sales, switchboard, office practice, piano tuning. There was even a babysitting course. And of course, we got along with each other most of the time. There were some kids there that were daredevils that pulled a lot of stunts. We had kids who smuggled booze onto the campus and got caught. There were other children who stole from the campus, brought drugs onto the campus. There was one guy who OD'd on heroin, they found him in the parking lot. And then we had kids who pulled the fire alarm. One kid decided to urinate in a wall socket on purpose. He wanted to find out what the experience felt like. Yeah. Then there was the dreaded... (laughs) (laughs) Then there was the dreaded stunt of short sheeting a bed, which was so disgusting. Kids used to like to pull fast ones on other kids, you know, short sheeting beds and things like that. At that time, technology was different. We still had the big computers with the dial-up feature... And the only way to program a computer back then was to feed in some tape into the feeder, and that's how you would program the computer. Braille encyclopedias were very popular back then. There was no Google. There was no Internet. So you had the Braille Encyclopedia Britannica, which was about 142 volumes. You had the Braille Dictionary, which was about 72 volumes of Braille. We had the talking scales, not the talking scales. I'm sorry. We had the Braille scales, which would weigh ourselves by feeling the dial. The dial would be about uh, four feet off the ground, on top of a pole. You would be standing in front of the pole while you're on the scale, and the dial would move, and you're able to touch your weight. We were introduced to the Opticon back then. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Opticon, but I learned how to use one back in 1972.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: The Opticon is a camera device which you place on top of printed material with one hand, while with the other hand you put your finger in a little box where 144 pins vibrate in the shape of the letter that the camera sees. And that's how people would read print back then, before the talking devices came out. (laughs) A couple of years later, we did have our first Kurzweil Reader, and I was one of the first students to critique it, and evaluate it for the manufacturer. I made a lot of friends at Perkins, obviously, which after I graduated I missed. Until recently, of course, when I decided to form uh, groups of old friends from the school. We have three reunions a year. And it's very nice to see my old friends again from Perkins School. Very nice indeed. A lot of times teachers would hand out demerits and give us uh, things to do, community service or detention if we were late for class or if we did something extremely wrong. A lot of kids didn't like that, but those are the breaks. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I can add to this. The book is 23 chapters in length. You can get the book on audio CD from me or in print from me. What you want to do would be to email me at branco182 at verizon.net or to call 508-994-4972 should you want a copy of my home away from home, Life at Perkins School for the Blind. You can also receive the book on Smashwords or on Amazon.com. In ebook form. And if you want more information about this book or others that I have written, the website to go to is as follows www. that's spelled D as in dog, V as in Victor, O R K I N.com, slash Robert slash. And once you get on that site, you will see all the information relating to this book and my other self published books that I've written. Well, and thanks, Bob. And with that, I would like to open the floor to questions. You may have some.
3: Yeah, this is Sherry Bob. Could you repeat your email and your phone number again in case people didn't get to write it down?
1: Um absolutely you know, for, Sherry. I will do that. My email address is Branco, B R A N C O, 182 at Verizon.net. And my telephone number is 508 994 Two, I did want to touch on a couple of more things which I just thought about pertaining to my eight years at Perkins, and the first thing would be mobility training. Back in the day, kids would travel on the campus without using a cane, including the totally blind, which I found myself being amazed at, because of course nowadays we all use a cane if we're blind, but back then... The cane was thought of as a lesson tool. We never used it in our everyday life. We used it when we took a mobility lesson, and then once the lesson was over, we put the cane away, and we went about our business. But some of the things that I was taught included the regular cane techniques. We learned how to cross the streets off the campus. We learned Watertown Square, which is the main Center of Business in Watertown, Massachusetts. We learned how to cross streets using the lights, parallel and perpendicular traffic, which I'm sure some of you understand. We had the luxury of audible traffic signals, which guided us. And I think they were installed by the town because the town knew that blind children attended a school there. So that's why they installed the audible traffic signals. The other subject I wanted to touch on was cooking. We learned how to cook. And we learned how to prepare various meals. Uh, Of course, a lot of the stuff that we made was not very complicated because life was fast-paced at Perkins. I remember spending five weeks in an independent living situation, and one of the things that I had to do, was make breakfast and supper. And that was a learning experience as well for some of us who were involved with that. So I think now is a good time to ask some questions about the book, if you have any.
3: I have one, this is Sherry. Uh, My first question is, I don't have a sense of how large this school is. Could you tell us if you know how many students are like in high school or how many students were in your high school senior class?
1: All right, I will tell you how many students were at the school when I was there. I would say approximately 320 students were at Perkins back in the 70s. The average class size was anywhere from 10 to as much as 25. The higher numbers were earlier because with Chapter 766, which allowed a lot of the blind high school students to be mainstream in public school, class sizes got smaller and smaller. And by the way, you just reminded me of a very good point, Sherry. Once that happened, the director, Ben Smith, had to figure out a way to fill those spaces because many of the blind college-bound students were leaving the school. So he brought in some students with more special needs, which eventually the school evolved into a multi-handicap school. Not only were many of the students blind, but they had developmental disabilities. And nowadays, from what I hear, many of the students are also in wheelchairs, which means they had to renovate the school to appease those particular students. They had to install more elevators. They had stairways, etc., etc., etc. As far as campus size, you had a lower school and an upper school. The lower school consisted of students from kindergarten through grade 6 with some special needs students, and the upper school consisted of students from grade 7 through 12 with some special needs students. There were a total of four lower school cottages, and I would say 10 or 11 upper school cottages. You had the main classroom building in the upper school, which consisted of offices, the library, Dwight Hall, which was a concert hall, the chapel. We had morning chapel services almost every morning until that was sort of lifted later on for some reason. We had two study halls, a museum. We had the swimming pool, the gym, piano rooms, music practice rooms et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. plus the bell tower, which rang the chimes every 15 minutes to tell us what time it was. And a lot of the kids used to learn how to play Christmas carols, believe it or not, uh, using those chimes in the Perkins Tower.
3: Does um, Lauren or um, Marcia or anyone else on the phone, do you have a question for Bob? Yes, Otherwise um, we'll switch
2: to the room. <clears throat> um. I was uh, more or less wondering. Uh, I know a couple of people who went to Kurt Perkins besides you. I don't know if you know him. A guy named Chris Bailey. Uh, he went to Perkins. He may have been after your time or before your time. I don't know. And also Don Coco. <laughs> Don Coco, I
1: talking... know. Oh yeah, yeah. I know Don died. Coco. Yes.
2: Yeah, he died unfortunately.
1: Yes, I did hear that. I'm very sorry to hear about that. But what was yes. your question?
2: Andy, my question was um, what um, did everybody in Perkins I understood that you had to, to take chorus? Is that true? And what was the <coughs> rationale behind uh, that? Okay,
1: that's a good question. I think that their decision making where it pertained to chorus, was handled very poorly and i 'll tell you why I say that. Yes, it is true that the size of the chorus got smaller once kids started leaving Perkins because of chapter seven sixty six and it seemed as though the administration was more concerned with quantity than with quality now see i don 't agree with that. I would much rather have a chorus with quality than just putting people in it just for the sake of putting people in it. They were putting kids in chorus that never took a voice lesson, and I can tell you that for a fact because I never took a voice lesson. Many of the kids that they put in chorus didn't know how to sing, and they'll admit that to you. They made fun of it. They tried to figure out ways to get out of it, and I don't think that was a good thing for the chorus. I think you should just concentrate on getting the best singer's Bring them into the chorus, no matter how big it is, and leave it at that. Don't force people to take the chorus if you can't handle it or if the people can't handle singing. They shouldn't be in the chorus in that case. And so as far as it being a mandatory thing, it seemed like it was for a while because it seemed as though the administration was concerned about chorus size. Mm.
3: Anybody else on the phone have a question?
4: Uh, there's a uh, posted question here from Vicki. She says, did you find that you were more informed as to blind skills than students who did not go to a school for the blind?
1: Yes. I felt that because of the training that we had, which included piano tuning, cooking, doing the laundry, doing dish crew, office practice, switchboard operating, transcription, and many other things, I find that, yes, we certainly learned the skills very well. I think that because we were in a school for the blind, there was more focus on us learning what the sighted learns as opposed to if we were mainstreamed. Of course, I was never mainstreamed, so I can't make that guarantee, but I think I can make an educated guess when I say that. I think that because I was in a blind school... I felt that there was a lot of focus on me learning what everybody else learned, and I think I learned a lot of it well.
3: Any other questions posted there, Ron?
4: Uh, nothing else is posted.
0: Okay, anybody in the room want to ask a question? Okay, anybody have a question? You can either speak on the phone or on the uh, thing by pushing down the uh, control button or you can you can write if you write in the by f8 and and rate your question I think we already found people know how to do that uh, I think I'll see if any, anyone else has a question first and I'll ask
5: mine after bit a question per se but I have a comment and Bob knows who I am and I didn't go to Perkins except for adult rehab I think he is correct in the in the blind skills part of it because I did go to public school and I had to learn some of the things later after college as a young adult. Um, And I was mainstreamed before 766 when a lot of blind kids were mainstreamed in the 70s and 60s. Um, But my comment is that, yes, you did get, I think you did get a lot of skills that I had to get later, but also there's another side to that issue and that is that we were able to be around more sighted people in public school, and we were um, competing with them. We had to be better than them almost in order to stay in public school. And I think that we got to, I was very fortunate. I got, um, I got the best of both worlds because I went to school with sighted people in the winter, and then in the summer, I went to camp for blind people. So
6: I had friends in both, in both areas. Uh, <clears throat> Hi, Bob. Uh, And hi, everybody on the phone. Uh, Bob, what is the price of your book? Go ahead, Bob.
1: I heard the lady in the room's comment about being mainstreamed and the advantages that she had being mainstreamed, and I would tend to agree with that based on what she said. It made a lot of logical sense that she would have the experiences that she had from being mainstreamed, certainly. Certainly.
3: And then Lauren's question was, whose decision was it to make chorus mandatory, and do you know the reason for it?
1: Well, uh, again, it goes back to my theory that whoever decided to put us in the chorus made a mistake Um, in some cases because of the type of kids that were thrown in there without taking a voice lesson. Uh, I'm assuming the decision was made by the director at the time and it appeared mandatory because it seemed like they were more concerned about the size of the chorus than they were about the quality of the chorus. Sure, you want a good quality chorus, but don't worry about the size. If you get got people in there that can't sing, they don't belong. <laughs> Period.
3: <laughs> that makes sense to me. Amen. Are there any other comments from the room, Ron?
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask a question, if no one else has one. Uh now, first of all, I take it in the cottage system that you ate your meals there and everything um, the school I went to a school for the blind as well, and we went to um had like a central dorm or a dining room where everybody came to eat and that we stayed in dormitories. I think I would have preferred the cottage system much more, but did you do your eating there and also, I noticed that many people said that. Students attending Perkins were really coached as far as charm and how to talk to people. I mean, if you had met a, a new person, uh, is that uh, was that your experience?
1: Well, let me answer the first question first. Yes, we ate in the same building that we slept in—the the main dining room was in the cottage. Each cottage had their own main dining room. And unless we lived in an independent living situation, our meals were served to us in the main dining room. So, yes, we did that. And as far as manners, Perkins was very good about manners. They made sure that we all learned our manners well. Whether or not everybody abided by what we were taught, that's another subject matter for another time. But most of us... (laughs) We tried to be as well-behaved as possible and we were taught character and things like that. I think the house mothers and other staff did a great job. And as a matter of fact, one other thing that I want to bring up in relation to that issue is many blind kids have bad habits, bad mannerisms, as they call it. And there could be a debate as to what causes these mannerisms. Some say that it's because of Perkins not allowing the mannerisms to, to be deprogrammed, which I disagree. I think a lot of it is when you're very, very young and you're an infant, let's say, or even a toddler, and you're blind, you don't see your environment. And if your parents, for whatever reason, don't discipline you the way they would discipline a sighted person, they would let those mannerisms that you're going to develop fester to the point where they're going to grow and they're going to become part of you. And what happened in a lot of cases is when these little boys and girls got to Perkins, they had these tendencies or these mannerisms. It was the house mother's job to sit down with them and try to deprogram them to the best of their ability. Sometimes the house mother was successful at it. Sometimes she wasn't. It all depended on who it was how trainable they were, et cetera.
3: Next question, Ron.
4: Okay, uh, looks like there's another printed one here from Vicki. She says, uh, how do you do you know if Perkins now is teaching science students w- uh, with up- to-date technologies or about up-to date technologies?
1: I would say, based on the information that I have about what Perkins is doing today, that yes, technology is taught. As a matter of fact, there is a new program at Perkins called Perkins Products. So they do sell a lot of high technology equipment at the school, and there are different teachers who train in high technology as well.
4: Okay, she had another question asking, how many people were in a cottage, and did you share a bedroom?
1: On the average, when I was there, we had anywhere from 20 to 25 people in a cottage. Some bedrooms had two people in them. Some had as many as three or four.
3: Okay. Does anyone like... on the phone have a question?
2: Wow. Wow. My comment is the, the places that had three and four bedrooms, that must have been awfully crowded. How did every, uh, you know, where was the room for everybody to put their stuff so that there wouldn't be an awful lot of fisticuffs and everything that would be going on, just like it would be going on uh, in most uh, places where you've got people stuck together 24-7, pretty much.
1: <laughs> First of all, That's a good question, but let me explain it this way. The bedrooms in the cottages were not small. They were large, large enough to fit four twin beds and four bureaus. Now, the bureaus were very small. They were tall, and they had five drawers. So you would put your clothing in each drawer. Everybody had his own bureau, and everybody had his own twin bed. There was certainly enough room in the bedroom to accommodate four boys. Absolutely.
4: Hmm. Okay, it looks like... uh, Any more
6: questions from the room, Ron?
4: Yeah, it looks like Joni has a question. Let's shift to her. Um,
6: I asked before, maybe you didn't hear me. Bob, what is the price of the book? And I also went to Perkins for one very interesting year. I went back in 1957-58, so I went quite a bit um, earlier than Bob did. And... um, it was uh, <laughs> it was the place I loved to hate because there were things about Perkins that were terrific, but they wanted to schedule every second of every day and they wanted to know where you were and what you were doing and it intruded on my life because I had been living at home and... Um, um, I had plenty chores to do at home, but the chores at Perkins, like Dish Crew, was was, a whole book could be written about Dish Crew, which they later stopped because the Board of Health came in and said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you can't let these kids wash and dry the dishes, they are not getting them clean, especially the silverware.
1: Well, Joni, first of all, I guess I could write a sequel about Dish Crew. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, we, had, we had a similar experience the first two or three years at Perkins where they wanted to know oh, almost every move that we made, and they scheduled every moment for us, yes. And as far as Dish Crew goes, after you left, Joni, they solved that problem. They put in automatic dishwashers so that by the time I learned it, I used an automatic dishwasher, and no Board of Health came and got us (laughs) then. Her other question was the price of your book, Bob? Oh, yes, I'm sorry, Joni. The price of my book is $12 plus $4 shipping and handling if you buy the audio CD from me personally or if you buy the print edition from me personally. If you want to buy the book online, I believe the price is four ninety nine, dollars or it might even be three I'm trying to think which it is. I have so many books online right now. But once you go on the website, which is www.devorkin.com/ slash robertbranko slash, you will see the prices. And it's available on Smashwords, and it's available on Amazon.com.
0: Okay, I have a question, because you had mentioned that the, as has happened with a number of schools for the blind, and a number of them have closed, as you probably know. Uh, do you think that the, I, I'm wondering if maybe having people with uh, cognitive disabilities, which, you know, were it was necessarily the best thing. I know it saved the schools for a time, but I'm frankly concerned when, you know, severely um, impacted students live with children who are pretty much of normal intelligence and normal uh, normal acting, pretty much, child, you know, other students. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
1: I do. What they tried to do when I was there was they tried their best. They weren't perfect at it, but they tried to put the developmentally disabled <laughs> students in their own cottage and had the more intellectual students in another cottage. They tried to do the best they can that way. Of course, per capita, you didn't have an equal number of each, so obviously you had several of the intelligent ones, for lack of a better term, in with the ones that were challenged, but most of the challenged ones were all together, so that they had people to to bounce off of or talk to and... And I think those those particular cottages were staffed differently, you know, so that those kids were accommodated more specially. I think Perkins tried to do it that way to the best of their ability.
3: Did they have to bring in more staff to deal with these students with different needs, or was the Perkins staff just stretched really thin?
1: I really don't know if they had to bring additional staff in. It didn't seem like it when I was there, at least based on the conversations I've had with those kids back in those days and even today. I would assume, however, that as the 80s and the 90s came upon us and the school really evolved into a multi-handicap school almost exclusively, you had to bring in additional staff that were... Really well-versed in special needs education, and you almost had to bring in physical therapists, I suppose, in some cases, or personal care attendants, which weren't too prevalent back then in the 70s, although the deaf had their own aides. A lot of the deaf students that were at Perkins in my day had their own worker with them um, to guide
4: them and to interpret for them. Okay, it looks like Jan has a question. Let's see if Jan is still there.
5: Yep, yeah, I'm still here. I came in a little late, Bob, because I was busy doing something else before. Um, I'll be seeing you on the third of May, as you know, and I wondered if you could remember to bring a book copy for me, and um, and I can give you the money. And I don't know whether shipping would be counted for that. But also, I was going to ask you and you probably brought it up before. On. Did you get mobility and daily living skills training during all the years? You probably.
3: sounded like there was some interference there with your question. Um, Maybe you could repeat it or type it.
5: I'm trying to get the key. The text message came in. That's why. I have it set so it will read the text messages. What I started to ask was, number one, um, I do want a copy of your book if you can bring it on the third when I see you. And um, I keep forgetting to ask you about that. And also, I know you may have brought this up because I came in late. Um, what, you came in when the co-ed cottages were, in, um, were inst- introduced into Perkins. What is your opinion? And you may have brought that up before I came in, I don't know.
4: Is this Jan? Uh, yes, it is.
1: That's Jan, right? Hi, Jan. Um, okay, well, my opinion of co-ed cottages, obviously, the director who decided to, make the co-ed cottages, had different ideas than his predecessor. Because as I said at the outset, it was really hard to get acquainted with the opposite sex at first. And, you know, everybody was segregated for the most part except in class or, or in the rec rooms, or, and that was it. You couldn't visit the opposite sex in their cottages or anything like that. And I can, And the thing was, that director had a certain philosophy, which the guy that followed him obviously didn't have. I mean, did he really expect us to believe that when boys and girls were in the same cottages that nothing was going to be tried or experimented, you know? And then you can have this debate, too, where, okay, if it's okay for a boy to hang out with an, another boy in the bedroom after hours in an all-male cottage... Then what would, be the, what would be wrong if you already have a co-ed cottage designed for the students if a boy went into a girl's bedroom
4: after hours? <clears throat> Let's see if Jan has another comment on this.
5: Yeah, I do. That was my thought because um, I was in, you may be familiar with the Northeast Building. I was in the apartments in the Northeast Building right, right after you graduated probably, and I will be seeing you on the third as you know. Um, And we could maybe talk about it more then. but um, And, of course, that was younger adults. That was like people that were in their 20s. They were not high school students. But we went into each other's apartment just about any time we wanted to. And, I mean, I'm sure that there was a little bit less of that going on in the cottages. But we, oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I was dating someone at the time. Um, I know of at least three other couples that got married. Um, including me, but uh, there were several of us that met and got married through the whole thing. And you know, that was my that was my thought as well. There were two sides to that.
1: Indeed, indeed. It, like it, it's almost like the school got liberated. I mean, I, I could say it that way, I suppose.
0: I understand too that. Perkins was one of the schools for the blind that also had programs for the deaf. Uh, the deaf and blind uh, were you taught a sign language, or were students who did have hearing impairments or who were, you know, profoundly deaf, were they included in the general uh, area as to where, you know, other students lived in the cottages?
1: Some of the deaf blind boys and girls lived in the cottages with us while others had their own cottages i don't know who made the determination of which ones were mainstreamed with the blind and which ones were confined to a cottage exclusively for the deaf i don't know who made that decision but both of those instances happened
4: Okay, Vicki asks a question also. Did you get mobility training uh, daily, all the time you were there, or did they uh, make you wait until the last few years to get your uh, mobility and daily living skills?
1: I started my mobility training in seventh grade. I had it for six years, once a week for two hours.
4: Okay, let's see. I don't see any other questions. Anybody have one?
3: Uh, Yeah, Bob, maybe you could mention some of your other books.
4: Okay. I
1: have two other books out. One of them is a cookbook called What We Love to Eat, which consists of recipes submitted exclusively by the blind. And that book is available in Braille, in large print, and on audio CD for $10 plus $4 shipping and handling. I also have another book called As I See It, From a Blind Man's Perspective. That sells for $10 plus $4 shipping and handling and is available online, as is my home away from home, through the same website. And it is also available in print and audio CD. The online version obviously is a lot less. It's like three ninety nine.
0: May I ask what you're doing now? Uh, are you working or are you uh, could you tell us a little about your life today?
1: Sure. I am a publisher of a magazine called Consumer Vision. It is a bi-monthly publication. In fact, several of you on this call, I know for sure are already subscribing to it. I know Lauren is, I know Jan is. and it's via email. And it consists of articles mostly related to blindness, although I do have other types of articles that are in it as well. I have different writers who submit to us. And it comes out six times a year. And you can find the back issue at www.consumervisionmagazine.com. I also run a bowling league for... Persons with Disabilities, actually it's a mixed bowling league where we have bowlers with disabilities and bowlers without disabilities. We run it once a week from September to May. I am also about to start a spiritual fellowship group for blind and visually impaired citizens in my city through the North Baptist Church where we're going to meet once a month. And the meetings will consist of a meal, along with Bible study, social hour, musical entertainment, etc., etc., etc. I also sit on the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind Consumer Advisory Council in the region. And I also do some work for a corporate, a nonprofit corporation called Project Starfish which is a socio-economic platform which offers shared services between blind consultants and small businesses. If the business needs a skill performed, our Project Starfish team of blind consultants will be assigned to do that skill for pay. And since last September, Project Starfish has placed blind people in over 35 jobs.
2: Uh, Bob, uh, this is Marsha. Uh, what uh, just actually do you do with um, Project Starfish? I mean, what, what, uh, what skills do you, for the heck of it, what skills do you bring to the table?
1: <laughs> okay, well, the skills that we are using or offering to the small business include customer service, social media, marketing, research, virtual administration, content writing, and appointment setting.
2: Ah.
1: And if you would like to know more about it, you can drop me an email. Perhaps you can be recruited onto one of our teams. We have a consulting team, and we have a team that does case studies on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And we also have a website. Here I go giving out another website, but that's okay. www.projectstarfishinc.org Ah, yeah, because
2: I do word processing.
1: You do? Yeah. Are you involved in social media and content writing, for example, and marketing? I have not
2: been in. I haven't been uh, involved in, in that. What I have actually done is uh, transcript, although I can write if, if necessary. You know I'm a uh, medical transcriptionist by the way. <laughs>
1: oh, congratulations, Marcia.
2: I've been doing that for oh, 37 years. Oh good. <laughs> Are,
3: uh, any other questions in the room,
4: Bob? or I mean Ron? Let's, let's see. It looks like Ruth has something.
0: Let's go to her. Well, actually, I was just uh, wondering how we're everybody is doing. We're getting close to our hour, but we certainly want to allow enough time for everyone to ask questions and to uh, <coughs> excuse me to bring up different things. I think sometime it'd be nice if we had a uh, a thing on various schools for the blind because there are some great differences. Uh, in some of these schools, Perkins was always well thought of for its academic prog- programming, and for you know teaching s- students to socialize with just about anybody. And I know of a number of famous people who went to to Perkins, among which was Helen Keller. And uh, but a number of you know famous people, a number of people did go that, to this school. And I think that the schools for the blind. Definitely have a place, but unfortunately, that's kind of been lost sight of, at least in many places around the country, that some people think being with sighted people is just being there, rubbing shoulders with them, is good enough as far as education, and it's my opinion, of course, in my own humble opinion, but the person who really has the best chance is the person who has had both a public school experience and a uh, school for the blind experience, because both of them have things to offer. So if there's anyone else who has any questions, uh, you know, let's, uh, that's fine.
2: Well, the question I have is, how can what are the means by which these books can be paid for?
1: By check. I don't do credit and I don't do PayPal. So what you would do is let me know via email. Um, That might be the best way because in the email you'd be giving me your address and what I would do probably is write you back or call you back whatever way you'd want me to do it and give you my information and then once i get your money i send you out the book now my home away from home comes in a package of six cds if if you want the book in that format right it's read by two very very competent staff members at the perkins library they're very very good readers i think you'd really enjoy their dialect they're very good Mm mm-hmm
2: and what about the uh, As I See It?
1: Same deal with As I See It, although that ah, is a three-CD set on audio as opposed to oh. six.
2: Aha. Okay, great. Then I will be ordering me a copy of said books.
1: <laughs> well, Marsha, what you would want to do then is send me an email. You have my email address, correct?
2: Um. Let's see. Uh, I'm gonna look here. Let's see what they draw here. Bob? Uh, yeah, 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 Just a minute. Mm-mm. Uh. i one eighty two at Verizon net.
1: Yes, and thank you for giving it another plug. That's cool. And, yes, that's the address, and you just let me know that you're interested in the book, and I'll take care of everything for you.
2: Oh, cool. Yeah, that sounds like a plan, hey?
4: (laughs) Okay, it looks like Joni has another question.
6: Let's
4: see if Joni's there.
6: Hi again, Bob. Bob, you might want to talk about the live conference rooms that you have on the phone. Um, One is trivia on Saturday mornings. Um, We have a lot of fun. We go into trivia. Bob asks us questions. And um, that's from 10 o'clock to 11 um, every Saturday morning. And we do it via phone. And... um, Ben Bob has a chat, a phone chat, on Sunday nights. Um, it's for people that have gone to Perkins, but most of the people that go on it haven't even gone to Perkins. And we just talk about blind things, different things that happen in our lives. And, um, and that goes from 7 p.m. to uh, whenever we are done there. It's a lot of fun, we laugh a lot, uh, we have some very humorous people on there, and it's a little kind of nice way to end your week, and um, uh, I hope it's alright that I brought these up, Bob, because Lauren and I both go into it, both of us being from New Jersey, and, uh, and we, we've been good friends for, well, more than good friends for the past Zillion years, right, Lauren? And we have a good time. Um, And um, so um, I hope it's okay that I brought it up, and uh, you can give the phone number, Bob.
1: All right. Why don't I do that, Joan? I will give the phone number to the conference room that I have in Chat Oasis for the Saturday trivia and the Sunday night phone chat. The phone number to get into my room at Chat Oasis is seven one two four three two three six four five again seven one two four three two three six four five and once you're finished with that. It welcomes you, and then when you hear the man's voice, you press 1 for the main menu, 1 for the room's menu, and then 6 for room 6, which is my room. And then you wait until it asks you to announce your name, hit the pound sign, and then you're right there in the conference.
4: Okay. Okay, looks like uh, Vicki had one more question. She says, since you had weekends at home, did you find that you fit in with sighted people when you graduated, and did you have any trouble in college? It
1: took a long time after I graduated from Perkins to get involved with the sighted world. It really did, because I was so used to living with the blind community. Eventually... I had no problem with the cited you know being mainstream for example in college and beyond that but it took a while. Okay, anybody um, else?
2: Oh, by the way, are your conferences on Eastern time in uh, like 7 p.m. or 4 p.m. or whatever Eastern time? Yeah,
1: yes, the trivia is 10 a.m. on Saturdays Eastern time. And the ah. Sunday night phone chat is 7 p.m. Eastern Time.
2: Ah, okay, great. I just <laughs> wanted to know what, what we were dealing with, so I know what I have to do.
0: <laughs> okay, I just have one kind of off-the-cuff question. But are you familiar, familiar with what's in the Perkins Museum? Uh, would it be something that maybe some of us might enjoy seeing?
1: Well, I'm assuming that everything in the Perkins Museum has some value and some meaning to somebody and some nostalgia to somebody. I know that when I was in science class in the sixth grade, the class made an erupting volcano, believe it or not. We learned how to make a volcano that erupted. We used the right chemical, it was battery operated, and it actually worked. And as a matter of fact, we gave it a name. And the name that we gave it, based on the fact that we were in Lower School, and because we were talking about Mount Vesuvius at the time, we decided to name the volcano Lower Scuvius. And from what I understand, it was submitted to the Perkins Museum.
4: Wow. (laughs) <laughs> okay looks like ruthanne has something else here
0: okay it's getting on after seven but if any of you want to stay and talk that is perfectly fine and i i i hope that uh i for, personally have found this very enjoyable and very uh educational and I'm sorry my husband missed it, but he's. We've got the recording, and I'm. I'm glad he'll be able to hear it. And one, I want to thank you so much, uh, Bob, for coming and talking with us and sharing your experiences at the at the Perkins School. And it's really been such a treat to hear you speak about everything. But uh, I think that for right now, I'm probably going to be it's getting on towards dinner time, and so far nobody's made dinner because bob is on the phone and i'm up here up here so i don't know if it's going to be pizza or what it's going to be tonight but uh, i want to thank you so much for speaking to us and uh, for making your book available to us and for everything that you've wanted to do so uh, i will let it go and if anybody would like to spend time talking that's perfectly fine but thank you so much for, for coming and speaking to us tonight.
1: You're welcome. And uh, Jan, if you're still there, I will bring that book with me on the 3rd.
5: I am here, and I will see you on the 3rd. And um, I have a couple more people that will be coming. I'll send you an email. So John are coming too. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for all your work tonight.
0: Yeah, You really did a wonderful job, and I really appreciate everything you did to help us, you know, with this conference or this discussion tonight, and
5: it was great. Yeah, the phone bridge worked really well, too. I could hear everything that was said on the phone. I was debating whether to go on the phone or go on the computer.
0: It certainly did. It really worked very well tonight. I don't know if anything else is planned for other special programs. I think we're probably going to be having something in late May or June, but I'm not quite sure just what all is going, you know, is happening. So that's where we are from here.